0: Thanks for pressing play. I'm proud to tell you, we continue our run of legendary authors. Our guest today, Scott O'Neill, is the author of a hot new book called Be Where Your Feet Are. Seven principles to keep you present, grounded, and thriving. And Scott's an incredible guy. And what you're about to hear is a, a really stunning, open, and fun conversation you see, Scott is the CEO of Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment, which means he's the CEO of the Philadelphia 76ers of the NBA and the New Jersey Devils of the NHL. And in addition to that, uh, he runs the Prudential Center in Newark, New Jersey, Dignitas, a pioneer in esports, a number of minor league teams, a venture fund, a real estate developer and investor, an innovation lab, and much more. And we get into all of it. Scott shares what it's like to run one of um, uh, two of America's most elite professional sports teams when COVID hits, crushes your revenue in your category. And in concert with that, social justice becomes a central element in sport. We dig into what Scott's view on the role of sports in society. How should leaders deal with social change and justice? And of course, the seminal question, should players just shut up and dribble? We also get into how Scott dealt with all of the challenges presented by 2020 and 2021 in the context of what's going on in the sports category, which is a massive digital transformation where the very definition of the category sports team is being redesigned for a new era. We also look at some of the incredible challenges Scott has in his job, because imagine this, he runs an organization stuffed with type A's, many of whom are millionaires, billionaires, and some of the biggest celebrities in the world. And the average age is 27 years old. We also, uh, Scott pops the hood for us on how uh, they were able to design one of the greatest turnarounds in sports at the 76ers. Imagine if you took over after the the team had had three of the worst years in NBA history and tried to turn it around. What would you do to make it a winner again? And uh, now the 76ers are back to mega success. And Scott uh, sort of shares with us how they learned to trust the process, particularly in a world that demands results now, and why trying to create the greatest place to work in the world made a difference in the turnaround. If you care about uh, team sports, if you, um, you love taking the long term in business and trying to figure out how business can make a difference as well as be successful, you're going to love everything about this episode. And you're listening to Christopher Lockhead follow your different we're brought to you by my friends at oracle netsuite the number one cloud business system check out netsuite.com different for your free product tour today my friends at splunk are the leaders in data transformation visit splunk.com and learn how to bring data to everything that's splunk.com d2e don't forget to go to lockhead.com and subscribe to category pirates the newsletter authority on category design for the different mind. And my friends at Malibu Milk are uh, the world's first organic flax milk. You know how great flax is and I'm telling you Malibu is legendary. Check out Malibu Milk with a y.com now. Hey ho, let's go. Well, Scott, I sure am stoked to meet you. Likewise.
1: I know you're across the country. I'm sitting here in hill- the hills of Pennsylvania, and you're out in, I believe, Santa Cruz.
0: I am. We're two blocks from the Pacific Ocean.
1: That does not sound terrible.
0: It's pretty It's pretty great. <laughs> Although New Jersey is a fun place to be. I've had many a, many a good time in New Jersey.
1: For sure. Yeah, no, the Jersey Shore is a, is a place to be. It's not like they show on MTV. It's actually a wonderful, wonderful place to bring your family.
0: Yeah, no, no doubt. And uh, I've gotten myself into some fun trouble in Newark a couple of times.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, dance, I dance up and down the East Coast. I spend most of my time in either New York City, Camden, New Jersey, Newark, New Jersey, or Philadelphia. So four great cities to spend a lot of
0: time. And it looks like from everything you do, you're bebopping around those locations a lot.
1: You know, um, you know, I run sports teams, um, and and et cetera, as they say. So, um, it's a, it's not a bad way to make a, make a living. I, (laughs) I get up every day, smiling, excited to get out of bed and pop on the floor. And I have a really kind of run to work, run home philosophy. And, and to be able to do that in some communities that, that could use some help is not too bad either. I mean, these, I've, I've had this debate with several of my friends about the role sports should and could play in the world. And, um, and at the end, I always say like, I don't really care. I just, I mean, meaning like the argument is, is sports shouldn't have this kind of influence and impact. And I say, great, it does. And I actually have an opportunity to help people and drive change in communities and bring people together and create community and coming off, uh, A pandemic where we've had a year on the shelf or in a cocoon or isolated, I don't think there's a better platform to build and deliver what we need more than anything else in the world right now, which is connection and escapism and community. And and to do that where I get to do it every day is is quite a blessing.
0: You know, it's interesting you use that phrase, connection. Uh, You might have seen Kevin Johnson, the CEO of Starbucks, came out uh, not too long ago and said that they were gearing up at Starbucks for the economy to open and so forth. And he described what he anticipated as being the great human reconnection uh, that will take place at Starbucks. And so is that what's gonna take uh, place at the Prudential Center as well?
1: You know, I, I prefer to call it the new roaring 20s. Um, I, I, I think we are itching and scratching and clawing to get back together. And um, I know I am and and i've had the the, the blessing to be down you know uh, the NBA had what they call a bubble, and so they essentially put the teams in one location, kept them safe, isolated them,, um, and created an environment. I was happened to get down there and be able to watch games and so you could imagine to watch an NBA game and be the only fan which I was of the game, the only fan of the game, and to go from that and but but you know what it did for me, which is so strange. I had this incredible boost of mental health, which I think is going to be the next great challenge over the decade. Um, I think all this isolation and separation and anxiety that, that we are hearing and feeling is going to put quite a bit of strain on us, us as leaders and, and us as dads and moms and, and people in the community. And, um, but boy, did I feel a boost. And so then when the, the season opened up, although to you know no fans, again, like at least my staff was able to come to games and just feel something normal. You know, and as we, de- as, you know, set out to define what that new normal is, you know, I just felt a boost of, of kind of happiness and energy and connection. I, I I will say that I think these roaring 20s are going to be coming at you just like they were in, in the 1900s. Let's just hope they don't get followed by the next Great Depression.
0: <laughs> well, yes. And um, we just recently wrote a, an edition of our, our newsletter about exactly this. And we make the argument that we've already actually entered the roaring 20s. And there's lots of other smart people saying that. And some of the data is incredible. Things like the Wall Street Journal reporting that companies today have more cash on hand than at any point in history. The U.S. consumer is more wealthy now than at any point in U.S. history, which sounds so insane in the heels of this uh, pandemic. Um, But it just does feel like there's a lot of cash and there's a lot of desire at the human level to reconnect. And, And so with all that said... You know, you, you touched on it a little bit, Scott, but what do you think the role of professional sports in sort of um, bringing our society together is?
1: So the role of sports has been, I think, the same for some time. And and that is to, you know, in arena to build community. I mean, that is 100 percent. You walk into an arena and you feel like you're part of something bigger than yourself. You lose yourself. You, you, act, you go back to your childhood. It brings you back to your memories when your mom or your father took you to your first game. At a concert, you might get up and dance. You would never be at home dancing or pop up in a restaurant and just start dancing. you know. But at a game, you just feel like you can cheer and shout and boo and, and uh, pop out of your seat and feel like a kid again. Um, and all with this kinship and brotherhood that is really hard to find anywhere else. And in uh, what, what's what been great about this pandemic, um, and I, I don't mean to say that in a tongue-in-cheek way, and I, I know people have suffered and people have died, and, and I know there's a lot of heartache, but there have been so many positive things that have come out of this time. This is what I call the great pause. But for sports teams, boy, you know, only 1% of fans will ever go to a a, a game live at the 76ers. So of all our fans in the world, only 1% hits a game. And so for us, we've had this pause has allowed us to to do a better job at reaching them and creating a second screen and third screen experience to drive that community, whether it be in, in Shanghai or London or, or Santa Cruz. And so so that's been fantastic. And then the third piece and kind of our responsibility is to, you know as I said, leave the world better than we found it. And we happen to be in and operate in cities that, that need help. Camden's average household income is about $13,000 a year. And Newark, you mentioned you spent some time in Newark. That's a rough and tumble town that that hasn't, you know, while it's, it's had a renaissance over the last 10 years and seems to be um, evolving and getting better, has a long way to go until that's a desirable place to, to live, work and play and win. And Philadelphia has the second highest poverty rate of any major U.S. city. And our other, our G League team plays in Wilmington, um, which has a very, very painfully high murder rate. And so, you know, and, and some might think that to be disappointing or challenging. I think, wow, what a, what a pleasant opportunity, um, because whether you like it or not, we have the ability to reach and teach children, and uh, we hold a special place in the hearts of these cities. And so, uh, you know, that that's like the third leg of the, st- the stool for me, and that's like, can we leverage who we are and what we have to drive change and make a difference?
0: And so what role do you think uh, professional athletes and the executives who run the franchises, have as role models for young people?
1: You know, Charles Barkley famously said in one of his Nike commercials, you know, I am not a role model. And I, I and, and you know, the way he was explaining it as teachers should be role models and firemen should be role models and police officers should be role models and generals in the military should be role models, but, which I agree, they're, they're all wonderful role models. But But you can't, think for a second that you're not a role model when you put on a Philadelphia 76ers jersey or a New Jersey Devils jersey or even one of our Dignitas jerseys, our esports guys. The reality is, is that at least I've been in this business 25 years. And 25 years ago, they came in as kids into this league. Now, they are, the players are smart. They're worldly. You know, about a quarter of the players are coming from um, another country. In fact, two years ago, we had, players from five continents on our team. Can you imagine that? Can you even imagine that 20 years ago? And so they come in with this global view. They're smart. They understand their brands. They understand absolutely who they are and how to build an audience and how to impact and influence people. And they're doing this when they come in at 20 years old. And I think back to when I was 20 years old, I could barely get my shoes tied on the way out. Um, so, so this, this next generation of players is special, um, and we've seen examples um, in our, you know, in, in my little world here that I have. I mean, Joel Embiid gave five hundred thousand dollars to um, help at to University of Penn, okay, to help protect um, frontline workers with special COVID gear research. Now again, again, go back twenty years. Is that what you'd expect from a player? I I wouldn't. Okay. It, remind C-
0: me how old Joel is.
1: He is twenty six. Okay, Ben Simmons, who I believe is 24, he set up a platform called Philly Pledge, so that you could give microtransact through microtransactions, donate to your favorite charities in town to help people who are suffering from COVID. Again, now these are global superstars. These two guys, I mean, and he's 24, so they're very young in their careers. They're very young in age, but they're seeing the world differently. They see their ability to impact and influence at a different level. And, and, and the reality is the world has changed, you know, and, and, um, those of my, of my peers, my peer set or age peer set group, I'm 51 who scoff at, um, TikTok influencers or YouTube stars or Insta famous people, Instagram famous people. I got to tell you, you guys are missing the boat. The reality is, is they have as much or more impact and influence than the athletes that are we're playing, that, that are playing on our courts and the, and skating on our ice, and and the reality is, is it's about scale and audience and messaging, and um, and our players happen to do a, a phenomenal job.
0: I just heard you say social media matters a lot. <laughs> is that what I heard you say?
1: There are two sides to every sword, right? So, I think that you know if if you are trying to impact and influence people, and reach people, that is a wonderful, efficient way to do it. Um, in terms of, I talk a lot about mental health with my staff. Um, you know, if they're, you know, it's, it's like, if, if they're tired of hearing me say anything, it's this, do something for your mind, something for your body and something for your soul every day. I say at every meeting I'm in and I say, Hey, your mind, you have to learn something out of your core job. You need to listen to podcasts like this one. You need to read. You need to put on a TED talk. You need to find a hobby. You need to do something other than the job you're in because you have to have your mind going and, uh, and working. And for your body, you've got to get your heart rate up. And I don't care if you're surfing in Santa Cruz or you're playing pickup basketball with some kids in town or you're hopping on a Peloton bike, but that heart rate has to go up every day. And for the soul, which is a little complicated to talk about at work, although I do, And, um, and on one part you can pray and read scriptures and and go old school. And that is a wonderful way to find some stillness, but you can also meditate. You can do yoga. You can, you know, I'm not a runner, but runners tell me that they, they have that, that stillness when they run, um, you can go out and sit on the porch and listen to birds chirp in the morning, but that stillness is key. Now, all of that mixed with proper amount of sleep. And a self-check on your social media, to me, is the formula for mental health and wellness. Um, so, so when you say, uh, yes, social media is, is a wonderful tool, it's probably our most dangerous and deafening to uh, – I, I have a house of teenagers. So, so it, it is difficult. And I think it's, it's a cause of more issues than it is a solve of others. Uh, but as a, as a platform, a property, and a brand, you know, you'd be naive to not realize its power and influence.
0: Now, here's an interesting thing I've been wondering to ask you, which is, you know, I'm a former uh, public company CMO, and and one of the things as a head of marketing you do, you mentioned the por- importance of messaging and so forth, is, you know, you want to keep everybody on message, you train the sales force and the new corporate deck and to tell the company story and all that good stuff. And of course, we live today in an era where uh, everybody's a media company as an individual and and your athletes are some of the biggest superstars on planet earth. And so what's it like having an employee base who who, a large percentage of whom are in their twenties, who are mega in many cases, world famous who can wake up this morning and put whatever they want on Twitter or TikTok or pick your platform. And they may or may not be quote unquote on message. How do you deal with that? Yeah.
1: You know, I, I find that I have one daughter in college and, um, you know, we run a pretty tight ship in our house. And when our daughter went to college, we shifted from parenting to coaching. And so with my daughter in college, I share experiences. I share mistakes I made over time. I provide per- perspective in some of the decisions she's about to make or about to embark on. But, but when you have a child in college, um, you're done telling them what to do or you can tell them all you want but they can do whatever they want. I mean, you know, it's it's they're they finally have finally have true agency and can make the decisions they need to make. And I find that a lot with with um, professional athletes. You know, they don't they don't need a dad and they don't need a boss, you know, but sometimes they need some coaching. And sometimes they're open to it and sometimes they're not. Um, you know, the nice thing is is we're wholly aligned. You know, what is good for Joel Embiid or Ben Simmons or Tobias Harris or Nico Hisier or Jack Hughes is great for me, and vice versa and so so generally if we if that feedback emanates from love, I think it has a better chance of hitting delivery matters, and finding who the influences are is funny I, I'll give you like a, a a complete it will sound like a non sequitur, but it, it's right on the money is i had I, I do these kind of uh, round tables at work to make sure i'm connected to the to the crew, mostly young young crowd I have a twenty seven year old my business staff is average age is twenty seven years old okay so and we've got two thousand people it's a it's a fun young group and someone asked me and it's I literally opened the meeting with two minutes here's what's going on with the company and i said let's talk about life, love and the pursuit of happiness, where do you want to start and they fire away and they can ask anything and they do and one question is about well scott do you, would you prefer to hire from outside or promote from within? And I said, of course, promote from within. It's the easiest question ever. And this young man who's very talented said, but well, there's a position open and, and it seems like there's a search on. I said, yeah, of course. I mean, there's always gonna be a search. And I said, well, wh- what, are you, what have you done to make yourself a candidate? And he said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, are you waiting to get tapped on the shoulder? Because I mean, you're gonna be waiting a long time. I said, or I said, hey, this is me. This is the way I look at the world. I said, me, I would write a plan for that job. I would probably write an org structure underneath it as to how I would organize the business. I would be asking for time with whoever the hiring manager is. I would be spending time with those that influence and impact the hiring manager. And I would be making my pitch and spending every day thinking about how I position myself properly for that job. Because I don't wait for anything. And I said, you can be waiting, and you're going to be waiting an awful long time. And I said to the, the young man, I said, I don't know if you're qualified. But I, I, one thing I know is, like, you're not committed. And, and in, in many ways, like, that's how life works, right? I mean, that's, that is, I think, a microcosm for the world.
0: It's so great that you say that. One, one of my favorite expressions, Scott, is position yourself or be positioned. And as part of that, I believe that you have to be doing the job before you get the job. And I can remember years ago when a guy who was a senior director in product marketing was was pissed off that he hadn't gotten promoted to a vice president. And he's like, I'm ready to do this. And he was in my office, bitching, bitching. And I said, all right, you ready to be an executive? He goes, absolutely. I said, perfect. I took my monitor. I spun it around. I clicked on my calendar and I said, here's my calendar for next week. I'll take your calendar. You take mine you want to do that? And the guy almost shot himself. <laughs> and so it's like, okay, well then you're not ready. Right. So maybe you didn't deserve the promotion.
1: Right. No, it's hard. That, that stuff is hard. I, um, in particular in marketing, um, you know, as marketing has moved much more towards KPIs and numbers, I I've, I've appreciated it more. And as our group moves, um, we've had, I've had, I've been a part of two, like really interesting marketing explosions and one has been when I was with the New York Knicks, we had Lynn Sanity, And so that was uh, Jeremy Lin comes out of nowhere. Former Santa Cruz warrior, I believe, comes out of nowhere. Uh, and he's a um, Harvard kid from the Bay Area of Chinese descent and just goes nuts for eight games. Like nuts, like scoring 30 points a game. And, and the one thing I worked with a brilliant team at Madison Square Garden and we all got in a room and we just said, okay, let's pick one. Because everybody had whatever the, the name was for Linsanity at the time. There were like 15 names. And we picked Linsanity. Um, and, and we did two things that will always stick with me. One, we let it be a movement. In other words, like we didn't own it, we let the fans own it. What we did was amplify it because we had a content machine. So we were putting out at that time, over that eight game span, we were putting out somewhere between six and nine. Jeremy Lindland Sanity videos a day, okay? And it was going crazy. But we didn't try to control it, contain it, own it. We just tried to just put some fuel on the fire. When I got to Philadelphia, uh, we were in an intense, intense rebuild. It's been named now Trust the Process is the, kind of how people think about it. And, and it's a really misunderstood concept. But generally, it was about taking the long view. Our general manager, Sam Hinky, who lives out your way, used to say, if you want to go to the moon, don't bring a ladder. And he also used to say, uh, isn't that great? And he used to say. um,
0: So fucking great.
1: It's so amazing. He also used to say, there are no shortcuts to the top, only to the middle, which I love.
0: You know, it's funny you say that. One of the words I've gotten sort of decided I think we need to abolish is this word hack. You know, because everything's, everyone's looking for the quick hit, the easy tip, the hack. How do I, how do I hack my way to the uh, NBA finals, Scott? It's like, hey, man, there are no shortcuts, right? No,
1: no. And, and the, the great arbitrage in basketball and in life is patience, especially right now. It's like, it's not a hack. It's an arbitrage because we need it right now. You want to, you, you know, like, hey, we get a rash. We take a picture of it, put it up on some app, and the doctor sends us with a with a to go get a prescription at CVS, it's kind of crazy the way we're living right now. And in some ways, it's wonderful and it's efficient and it's fast. And in other ways, this hundred and fifteen mile an hour pace has got to slow. Um, right. But 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 we had we had one of our players, Tony Roten, after an interview at ESPN say, "Hey, our play, our coaches just tell us trust the process." I remember I was on the phone with our our president now, Chris Hack, and I was like, "Trust the process." He's like, "Oh, absolutely." You read that? I said, "I read it." And, um, and so again, we can't own it. Um, that's because it came from our player. The fans took it and owned it. And, you know, any, any, at that time in life is probably five years ago. I literally, I, I mentioned Shanghai before Shanghai, London, South Philly, I would be walking. I always have, you know, some kind of gear on and they'd be, you know, someone would pass me in the street and I don't know who I am. And they'd yell, trust the process. It became like a new hello for Sixers fans. And, and our guys, like our creative guys would always put like little TTPs or hidden Mickeys in the, in the, in the, in, the, in any of our visuals. But I just kept saying, I like, just, just fan these flames and it took off. And by the way, you know how hard it is. I mean, you're a marketing expert, a lot, know, know a lot better than I do, but, but it's hard because it, you know, if you don't control something like we used to, you know, go back 10 years, all we wanted to do is own and control, own and control, own and control. That's not how the world works now. And so when you don't own and control you know the brand takes twists and turns and you're just trying to guide that thing it's like landing a 747 with me with no experience and so it was we had some hairy days there but man oh man you took a brand that was on the verge of irrelevance and elevated it to the global scale it's pretty fun really fun
0: well and you you've made i think you tell me you know way better than i do but the city and of course the team so sexy again and It looks like Doc's done a great job. The PR is unbelievable. Obviously, you're you're leading the division. And so it's to a a layman, I would call myself a fan, but more on the casual side. But I always watch the NBA finals and sort of track it with sort of a half an eye throughout the year until the finals start. But it seems like you've done an incredible job in kind of revitalizing the team. I appreciate that.
1: Um, You know, we definitely passed the grandma test now, right? So like your grandmother knows who. Joel Embiid is and Ben Sims. It's kind of funny, um, but when I got here, this was a little mom and pop shop, and it's nothing wrong with that. Teams were all run differently, but it was we were we were effectively last in all the major KPIs, and uh, the brand was hit irrelevancy effectively, and we just made what's arguably the worst trade in NBA history for Andrew Bynum. So, so this was a, a team that was at the salary cap, not any good um, with. Two first-round draft picks over the next five years, um, and a business that had fallen apart. And we look forward now, and, and we sit in first place in the East. We're we're definitely considered a contender to win win it all, which would be wonderful. And you know, we lead the league in season tickets. Our sponsorship went from uh, a very very paltry thirtieth in the league, um, and is climbing dramatically. Our growth rate's insane. Um, so, you know, and the brand, every metric we have in the brand, and even in China. Um, we're now the fourth most popular team in China. And so, so that doesn't happen overnight. Uh, no overnight success does. And a lot of it has to do with a lot of luck, as, as most success does. Um, but a lot of it has to do with that, that original, uh, the original process um, that Sam Hickey led, which is just just be patient. Just keep making the right decisions over and over. And by the way, did, the question is, did we make wrong decisions? We made so many wrong decisions, you, you could build a house with them. But with the information we had, we made the best decision we could um, without influence from the media or the fans or other teams or other GMs or everyone else who had an opinion on what to do and how to do it. We said, that's great. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. Let's go see if we can build something special and lasting. And it looks like we're there.
0: It, it sure looks like it. And, um, you know, you, we read a lot about business turnarounds. But we don't read a lot, and we certainly don't hear about sports turnarounds. And so, and, and the interesting thing is, this turnaround has happened without you yet winning a championship. And so, there's an interesting thing, like in marketing, we hear this a lot. Well, you know, we can't really do much unless we have a great product. And and it's sort of interesting that you've been able to, from a marketing perspective, turn the team around at a perception level. And it's sort of, at least as a, as a, a casual observer, that's given you a little air cover to actually improve the product. Um, and so how do you improve the marketing and the perception ahead of the product and still not have people go, those guys are full of crap?
1: Yeah, it's such a good read. It's it funny, like during the really, really dark times, the, the three years, we had the worst three-year stretch of any three-year stretch by any team in NBA history in terms of winning percentage. So that's what you call historically bad, or that's how I would call it historically bad. And yet our season ticket base and our attendance and our gate receipts increased every year. Our sponsorship base increased every year. Our brand affinity, how we would judge it, whether it be, you know, ratings, social media followers, engagement, etc., all increased every year. And so, you know, part of that is just a really simple formula, Um, especially this is mostly driven by, by those of us who aren't that smart is you get really, really, hire really, really smart and really, really talented people. I mean, that, that is the easiest formula for success in the world It's you surround yourself with incredible talent. And then as the leader, you really have to figure out what you stand for, uh, what your culture is going to be all about. We define culture as what you tolerate and what you celebrate. Secondarily, we think about it as how things get done, how things actually get done. And so for us you know, we had a culture of fun. I'll tell you like a ridiculous story. Um, you know, I was under, we were all under a ton of pressure at that point. And I got a call, like a frantic call from my CFO. I was out of town. He said, Scott, I got a situation. I said, Oh no. He said, well, you know, the landlord wants to throw us out. I said, the landlord wants to wait, what, what happened? He said, yeah, I'll explain to you later. Um, but, um, you know, I said, could you explain to me now? He said, uh, well, I, I'll just send you the letter that I'm, I'm writing. I, it's not going to be a problem. I'm going to take care of it. I was like, okay, yeah, send me the letter. And the first letter thing, the sentence on the letter said something like, we will stop having our DJ on Fridays. Okay? DJ in the office. And, and the second letter said, we will stop having celebrations where we stomp and ring the bell during the week. Okay? And I literally laughed out loud. First of all, I didn't know we had a DJ. It was on a different floor. Secondly, we had the kind of culture and environment that you needed because in our business, in the sports business, I guess it's any business, when you're winning is fun. And when you're winning, there's life and there's light. And yet, when you walked into our office, you'd have thought we were a 55 win team. I mean, there was, it was so fun and the energy was incredible. Now, part of that is just having young, excited people that are thrilled to be there. We had this one young manager. Um, came in, his name is Jake Reynolds and he transformed the way this business operates as a 26 year old or 27 year old at the time. He's now a president of one of our teams. I mean, he's a elite, elite executive, but he made it fun. He was riding around. I don't even know what they're called. Those little hoverboards. I literally see him. I'm like, what are you doing? You know, they had, they had a basket and he would jump out of the office and dunk on the new people that would come in. It was like a little tiny mini basket. We'd jump out. He would wait until they come in and someone would sing on them. He would jump and dunk. Um, they had all these like traditions. If somebody sold something, they had their own song. They would literally play a song, hop up on the desk and sing it while everybody, while everybody clapped and cheered. And I was like, this, I, I said to him once, I was like, this is feeling a lot like romper room. He said, Scott, I'm going to make this the greatest place to work in the world. Ever since then, I've stolen that and made it my own. But I think that's an incredible thing to aspire to. I want to make this the greatest place to work in the world. He also is incredible. I mean, he has literally transformed the way we see the world. The second thing we stole from him was like, we commit to personal and professional development throughout. And so if you work for Harris Blitzer, sports entertainment, you have a professional development plan. You also have a personal development plan. And so we are kind of 360, whole self, how do we help your, I said it before, mind, body, soul, but how do we help you get to where you want to be as a, as a human being and as an executive? And that's, I th- you know, in my experience, that's, that's very rare. Um, we have, you know, I, I teach leadership development once a month to our top hundred leaders. We have, we don't have retreats. We have go forwards. Cause we always say we don't retreat. Like, I just love, like we, we just have, a place that you would want to be a place you'd want to work with people who want to be there and do extraordinary things and they're okay with failure and they debate each other. And and I have this saying that, that makes the, that our new executives crazy. I would say, you don't have to like each other, but you have to love each other. And I know love is not a word that, that people oftentimes use at work. I use it quite a bit, but I honestly don't care if you want to go to lunch, but if that person's falling, you better catch them before they hit the ground. And that's, that's just like you have with your brother or sister growing up, you know, he's like them, but you always love them.
0: It's funny. It reminds me the you might've heard of the beer brand out here called Sierra Nevada. Of course. And one of their slogans they put on their bottles and cans says family owned and argued over since, you know, 19, whatever.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Oh, my really wife's smart.
0: family were on the fifth generation of Italian farmers in San Jose, um, so her dad uh, cares for she he's 90 and uh, and his great granddaughter, who's two and a half, is now working in the orchard. And, and I've often thought about that. It's like a family owned and fought over since 1945.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm a half Esposito to my O'Neill. So I, I know the the uh, the passion of the Italian people is wonderful and, and treacherous and wonderful.
0: I tell people I who have not been part of an Italian family that being part of an Italian family, even, even as an invader like myself, is, is one of the great experiences of all time, for, for sure. Now, Scott, I, I also, of course, have to ask you about um, there's been this huge debate in our country. And uh, first, it started with Kaepernick taking a knee. And then, of course, it got amplified or multiplied after the horrendous killing of George Floyd. And, you know, you read articles about sports viewership coming down as athletes and teams have started to take stands and positions. And so, um, you know, there's a real debate in our country. Is there a role for athletes and and professional sports teams and and, and leagues in trying to change uh, social mores, social opinions, create, quote unquote, social justice? Or, you know, there's a lot of people who say, hey, shut up and dribble. And so where do you come out on this complicated issue?
1: Yeah. I don't think it's that complicated. I am, I'm, I'm disappointed with the shut up and dribble. I think, um, as I had said earlier, I believe that the athletes have such an incredible platform. I believe they have an obligation and a responsibility to do what's right and say what's right. And this is really clear. I had a, a good, a good dear friend of mine say once, what if, um, let's just, let's just go back to Nazi Germany. Okay. It's Nazi Germany. Like and the athletes didn't say anything because they should shut up and dribble. Like, what, what are we doing? You know, honestly, like, what are we doing this for? We have to get better and be better. Uh, We all know that there's, there's nobody that can straight face um, for a minute and say, the world is great. The world is perfect. Everything's awesome. However, this is an incredible country. When the anthem plays before a game, I stand proudly with my hand over my heart. I have so much love and respect for the flag I have so much love and respect for th- those that that fight and fought to protect the ordeal, the ideals of this nation. Um, I love the country. I love the fight we're growing through now. I love the struggle we're fighting through now, because this is what we're all about. And it's not easy and it's not smooth and it, it's messy. It's like life. It's messy. It's like a family, you know, and sometimes from the outside, the families look so great. Oh, look at that perfect family. Everything's awesome. And and look, oh, they're so wonderful. The marriage is perfect. Oh, the kids, oh, they're all perfect. They're all going to these crazy schools. Oh, they almost love each other. It's like the reality is his life is messy and his country's messy. And and I love the struggle. And and I I learned so much. And um, and this is from someone who grew, I grew up in a very diverse neighborhood. I grew up on basketball courts. I I grew up Building diverse companies. Um, when I walked into the Sixers, we had one woman who was a VP and we had one person of color who was a director. Okay. And we look fast forward now, I've got 13 SVPs and up who are women, and 34% of our company are African Americans or people of color. And, and so, so, and I did that the same thing at Madison Square Garden and the same thing at the NBA. That's my pattern. I, I, I believe that diversity is a, competitive, a sustainable competitive advantage in terms of how you operate a business. So I'm, am. Uh, that's so I believe it and drive it. And and if you'd ask me if I knew what I was doing or or had a view on on what it means um, for racial justice out of it, of course. I look at me, pat myself on the back. Ah, look what I've done. I'm awesome. And then, uh, and then the George Floyd gets murdered, and um, you know, the first thing we did was we had uh three town halls, and um, we had our black employees share experiences of racism. And this is Elton Brand, our, our general manager, saying that, you know, the alarm went off in his car. I mean, I'm sorry, in his house, and he says to his wife, "Hey, the cops are coming. You have to go." You know, he, he absolutely accidentally tripped it. You have to go answer the door. And she's like, "I'm not answering the door. You you made the mistake." And he's like, I'm, "Her name is Seneca. Seneca, do you know what this means? Like, they they a six eight guy walking out in this neighborhood. Like, do you have any idea what's going to happen?" You know, I had another friend of mine, DesRon Dorset, um, look into the camera and say, "You know, I've been pulled over 51 times," at um, which I was just like, "Whoa!" He goes, "Now I speed," which I thought was funny. And he said, "But," and he looks right in the camera and he says, "Scott, how many people, when you're pulled over, how many police officers have asked you if it's your car?" I was like, "Whoa." So it was, it was moments of um, another young woman, Lexi Williams, shared a story of uh, she lives in Hoboken kind of a upscale part of town um, near Newark. She said she left her car. She had to, it's alternate street side of the street parking there. So she had to move her car. She gets, walks out, out of, out of her apartment. She's like, Oh no, I'm not dressed appropriately for this neighborhood. Because, and then she's like, has fear walking to her car thinking like, am I going to have a problem? And so I will say like, so those are three small examples. And we had three 90 minute sessions on this and, and, uh, it would, it would, it would bring you to tears. Okay. I just shared three, three short ones. And then I like, I got on my horse. Like I read, I read white fragility. And I, this is great Harvard business school case on uh systematic racism, which I didn't really understand, like the impact of impact and influence on, on the housing rules and regs, Jim Crow laws, the, what they've done with, um, education over the years, um, uh, the banking fiasco, uh, that's, that's been disadvantaged African-Americans over the years. And, um, you know, I, w- I watched just mercy and, um, I'm, I'm I just read, I mean, I don't know how else to do anything when I don't know, all I do is study. I research and I study. And so if I get my hand on a movie, I'd watch it. If I get my hand on a book, I'd read it. If I get my hand on an article, I I'd, I'd engage. And, and I was disappointed. I was disappointed in this country. I was disappointed in myself. I was disappointed in myself. I didn't know. I didn't even know what the Tulsa massacre was. Like that's, it's a travesty. I know it's not taught in school and that's a shame. It's not taught in school, but you know what? I'm better than that. And we're better than this. And so um, I think as Americans, we have to want more. Um, and, you know, I, we, we talked about being, I'm a half Italian. Like, how do you think the Italians did when they first got here? Not so good. Um, I'm half Irish. How I think the Irish did when we got first got here. Kind of so treated good. like
0: shit too. Right?
1: Not <laughs> so good. And you know, now um, easier for Italians I, and Irish. We're white. Uh, eventually, we kind of uh, co mingle, co marry, and, and mingle in, and nobody knows the difference anymore. And then we can we can um, we can discriminate against some other race or group of people that comes in, and it's not right. It's not who we are. It's not who America is. Um, and unfortunately, we had a president at the time. And I'll make this political, but. We had a president at the time who believed that being divisive was was politically prudent. Clearly, and I, I'm not making any judgments. I mean, I I, I try not to judge anybody. I, I've got enough issues and problems myself, so I I really focus on uh, me first. I need to be educated. My family, are you educated? Are you learned? Do you know what you're talking about? Are you informed? And then I try to influence where I lead, whether that's, you know, at work or the community or church, wherever I am, I just want to make sure I can, I can make an influence an impact and impact and influence those around me. But man, oh man, oh man. So the question is, is like when you hear doc rivers speak, I get the chills. You know, I do. I, I believe he's an authentic leader. He's the coach of the Philadelphia 76ers and a tremendous advocate for equality. And, and you might say like doc, shut up and coach basketball. I say, Doc, how long can you speak? Because I want to be educated by what you know, what you've experienced, and help me learn more.
0: One of the big challenges, so I applaud you for that. I think that's where I land on this stuff. However, I talk to many CEOs of uh, major corporations, publicly traded corporations, and some of them have a real challenge because if they come out, um, you know, take a controversial topic like Black Lives Matter or defund the police... And if they come out and take some kind of a position, then you're, quote unquote, politicizing basketball or hockey or the NFL or whatever the sport might be. But in addition, there's a real revenue impact. If I'm the CEO of, you know, uh, Procter & Gamble and I make a statement and 30 or 50 percent of Americans don't like that statement, I might hurt my revenue. And and there seems to have been a real public backlash to some of this stuff that has impacted some uh, teams and leagues, and so, is there any part of the business equation? How's this going to hurt our revenue? When you look at these topics,
1: um, you know I only know what I know. I'm not a I'm not a Fortune 100 CEO of a public company, so I can tell you that my position is. You know, we lost I think eight season ticket holders because um, we were very vocal. We we pledged twenty million dollars to minority causes, we including a buy black program which gave five free sponsorships in Newark and five free sponsorships in Philadelphia to black owned businesses. We've completely changed our spending, uh, our vendor spending to have uh, it's like, it's painful. I mean, you look at your vendor spend, like do an audit of your vendor spend. If you're listening to this and, and you're going to have like 2% of your spending on minority businesses. It's not fair. It doesn't, it's not enough. Like we need to do more. Uh, we made investments into a real estate project in one of our uh, more disadvantaged communities So we're, we're in the game and we give money, you know, we give millions of dollars, obviously. So I, and you know, 80% of our players are African-American. So I I guess you might ask me like, Scott, seriously, you didn't have a choice. Like, I don't know if, if I had a choice one way or the other. And so I think if I were at Procter and Gamble, I would ask myself this question. Is equality a political issue? To me, it's not. It's not. It's a, it's a core value it's a core value of this country. And I imagine it's a core value of most of the companies that are run by these public company CEOs. And so I think there's a way to, to do the right thing without leaning on the fact that I might hurt my business because I, I, to me it doesn't, it's not acceptable. Like I, I would say that to you, I would look at my staff and I would manage it by numbers. I do. I would be actively putting processes in place to make sure that when there's an open position, that the candidate pool is 50% diverse. That's the final candidate pool has to be 50% diverse by any open position in our place. Okay. Are you doing, what are you doing about your hiring? When you look ar- around your boardroom or you look around your, your exec room, wh- who are you seeing? Does everybody look like you? And so, you know, I, I, this is less about putting out a, a press release that says black lives matter. Although I did that and I did it on my own social media and we did it through our company. Um, And I'm not judging those that do or don't because you have to make a decision that's best for you. Here's what I'm asking you for is like, are you doing something to make the world better? And in this case, like this isn't political. Honestly, it isn't political. Now defund police. That's political. I don't actually believe we should defund police for whatever it's worth. I do believe, do believe in black lives matter. So I, I I will say like, I worry, I, I have plenty of friends who are CEOs and running companies and I, I do push them a little, little hard. And they're worried like white male CEOs, they're concerned and they should be because they don't want to add up on any list that says, Hey, uh, whitest companies in America. Hey, you know, companies who are bad to work. If you're African-American, like you don't want to be on that list, you know, but I don't want you to do it for that. I I want you to do it because you're going to recognize that it's a sustainable competitive advantage. And when you have diversity of thought and diversity of experience and, and diversity of approach, you, your debates become richer and you make better decisions. Um, but we have to get in the game here. And I don't, I don't think you can sit on the sidelines in in any capacity now. And um, I think, you know, we're going to be on the right side of history. I talked a lot about that during this. Um, you can go back to really, really rough times in history of this country, every country. And um, you have to ask yourself that question. Do I want to be on the right side or the wrong side? But it's really clear. I mean, Treating people like people is pretty clear. That's a that's a core of who we are as a company and as a people. And when we, we when we miss on that, it's it's bad,
0: bad, bad. bad and bad. if that's not the most American thing we can stand for, then in my opinion, what what is? And you mentioned earlier how well the Sixers brand is done in China, and of course, alongside of the the spotlight that's been shined on the uh, inequality and the systemic racism. Uh, towards Black people, of course, we've had this shocking turn of events over the last year with so much violence towards Asian Americans, and so sort of tell me how you think about that in the context of professional sport and, and what the yeah. leagues trying to do in China and so forth.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. That that's that's been um, it's interesting. Um, some of the feedback we got, you know, I'm sure most most companies do surveys their their employees. We have a, you know, we set up several employee resource groups to, to tackle complex issues and and get feedback. And one of the feedback message points that came up is like, Hey, you know, you got this thing on African-Americans, like you guys circled it. You can always do more, but you circled it. But what about the rest of the groups? And I was like, that's good. That's good. It's rich. Uh, It's rich feedback. So we did, we started standing up. Um, Asian American LBGTQ group, and and trying to make sure that we are a place where you want to be, and you want to work, and you feel safe and included. And and so, I think with the Asian hate, it's so difficult to understand for me. And we were slow; we were slow out of the gates. It took us like seven days to respond. We were usually like seven minutes. And so we we finally got out of our own way, and uh, and and are beginning to to say what we have to say in the right way. But I, I don't know. I just think this is going to sound like a really Pollyannish naive view on the world, but for goodness sake, is somebody really different because they look different? Like, come on. It's like, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't connect. The dots don't connect for me. And, you know, I remember, um, I remember faux pieing way back. I'm sure that's not a verb, but I just made one. Um, I'm sure I, I've, and, and I said, um, I used the phrase I'm colorblind um, when I was young and naive. And I, I know that's an, off- that an offensive view to a lot of people because what I began to realize is, is like our differences are what make us special, all of us in every way. Um, and, and that's, you know, I used to have this t-shirt that said, be yourself. Everybody else has taken. And I love that notion, right?
0: Well, and your sweatshirt right now, I mean, I've been dying to ask you about it. Get used to different. Why is that on your sweatshirt, Scott?
1: Yeah, this is uh, right in your wheelhouse and uh, a gift from my wife. I love thinking about what the new normal is and what the, what the next chapter is going to look like. Um, I love thinking about that for myself. And I love thinking about that for my, my organization. And I love thinking about that for this country. And it's okay to be different. In fact, it's wonderful. And, you know, um, I've got three kids. They're all different. They're all uniquely special. And they're all different and they all have incredible strengths and they all have things that they do that, you know, I wish they could, could nudge up, up the, uh, and get a little better at as do we all. And so, so I, I like the notion of, of being different and thinking differently and, and acting, acting as if, you
0: know, if you will. Now, in that regard, Scott, one of the other things I'm fascinated to, uh, dig into with you is I try to put myself in your shoes. And your ownership group is a couple of billionaires, as I understand it. Yep. And uh, not to sound douchebaggy or whatever, but I have billionaire friends and I've spent a reasonable amount of time having exposure and working with, in many cases, billionaires. There's a lot of them out here in Silicon Valley. Uh, So I sort of get an idea of what they feel like, although Wall Street billionaires are probably slightly different than Silicon Valley billionaires, but billionaires are billionaires. And I would imagine they're wallflower type guys that don't have strong opinions about anything. So so there's that. And then each of your uh, brands, your assets, your businesses are run by gigantic ex- uh, uh, executives, presidents who, who run stadiums, presidents who run teams and GMs. And of course, some of the most legendary coaches in the history of the sports you're involved with, both, of course, hockey and basketball. And then, of course, they're the players themselves who are, some of the most highly compensated people on planet earth, certainly some of the most high profile people on planet earth. And a lot of them are in their early twenties. And so I imagine sitting in your spot, you are surrounded by people who are very type a, this is a guess, So this is all sort of a question, very driven, have very strong opinions, particularly about what you should be doing in your job. So I'm sure you get a lot of air quotes help and you have these massive egos and massive personalities with incredible drive upside down and around you all the time. And you're supposed to be the chief executive officer who I imagine somehow pulls all these big egos and type A's and driven people together and get them on the same page. And I think about that and I go, how the hell do you do any of that, Scott?
1: Yeah, I would say that. The, you know, Josh Harris and David Blitzer are the other two you're talking to. They're, it's their, their company and, um, and they have partners. I'm one of them. And the good news is, is, they have day jobs, you know? So, and they hired me to do mine, which is nice. Um, they are, they have really strong opinions and they're brilliantly smart human beings and they're wonderful people. And we have a nice mutual respect for each other. And I think that's kind of the the grounding part. And the second layer is, is we're pretty aligned on what we want to accomplish. It doesn't mean we don't argue. We we do. It doesn't mean we don't debate. We do. And it doesn't mean we don't have some intense disagreements. We do. But at the end of the day, you know, I'm, I'm in a, I'm in a business where this is supposed to be fun, you know, and it's fun for them. And I don't want to lose sight of that. And I hope they never lose sight of that. As for my team, Uh, the folks I get to work with every day. It's, it's a, it's a family. I mean, that's how we run the business. And I truly love the people I get to work with every day. And I think if you ask them, they would tell you that I set unreasonably high goals, which I do, that I'm extremely demanding, which I am. And that I can be difficult at times, no doubt. Uh, I think they'd also tell you that they could come to me anything, anytime, um, And I would be there for them. And I think they would tell you that I love them as people and I'm more invested in them and their lives than they could ever hope for and imagine. And that they work in a place that they're inspired to walk into every day. And to do that together is just more fun. And I think the notion of, you know, the general Schwarzkopf era is over. And maybe that's because the world has changed or maybe because that's because people have changed the last two generations that I get to work with are incredible. They're also incredibly demanding. They expect to be promoted every other week. They want access. They want complete transparency of information. And in return, they'll, they're ridiculously bright. They'll work harder than, than is reasonable. They're intellectually curious and they're connected. That's a good trade-off to make, right? But how does that, how does that look in terms of running an organization or, or managing a big staff? Well, it's different. You know, our, our pressures are different. Our demands are different. We have to be inclusive. Not only we talked about racially inclusive, but we have to be inclusive in in levels. And I mean, it it is, it is more taxing and you have to sometimes do more work because it'd be easy for me to sit up in my fancy office and be like, we're doing this, we're doing that, do this, do that. It's like, it's just, it's not how the world works anymore. Um, And so, you know, you almost consider each other as partners and, and, and you can partner on a project with a marketing manager. And and you'll get incredible insights.
0: Yeah, It's so interesting that you talk about that model, a Schwarzkopf model, not being the model anymore. And maybe let me bounce this off you and see if it, if it connects. We've had uh, four-star General McChrystal, Stanley McChrystal on several times, his partner, Chris Fussell, uh, former Navy SEAL commander on several times. And, and I've gotten to know some of these kind of high-end military leaders o- over the years. And and one of the things you hear McChrystal and Fussell, by way of example, talk about is sort of, uh, and I'm, I'm, I may be getting it off, but I'll be directionally right. What they ultimately came to was not a command and control model, but uh, a set of self-organizing teams. And that if everybody was well-trained, everybody was sort of clear on the objectives that the reality was Fussell and McChrystal couldn't sit back at Sencom and say, well, this is what you should be doing on the streets here. And it, it was exactly the opposite. So you sort of put this network model out and let the teams drive in the field. And if they have the right training and they have the right core values and they understand the goals of the mission, then there's this back and forth and ebb and flow as opposed to and a distributed sort of network model, as opposed to a command and control model um, how does that sort of fit inside your thinking?
1: Perfectly, actually. Like I I know the police chief, former police chief in, in Camden, New Jersey, Scott Thompson. Um, the, the army has come to him several times to figure out what community policing looks like, which I like because they wanted to take that mile to Iraq and Afghanistan, et cetera. And so I um I've spent a ton of time with him in terms of he moved when he became police chief, they disbanded the police and et cetera. And he came in as a a county chief and that it's the most dangerous city in America. It was with, it had at the time 200 open air drug markets. It's down to two murder rates dropped precipitously. And what he did was his first day on the job, he put everybody in the back of a SWAT truck and dropped off the officers at a corner and said, Hey, I hope you get to know the neighbors in this neighborhood because otherwise you won't be able to eat. And I hope you get to know the neighbors because I don't know where else to go to the bathroom. See you in 10 hours. Isn't that great? And said like, hey, we're going to get to get to know people. We are going to be part of this community. We need to pe- the people have to regain the streets. Like, the police can't. And then um, he tells a story, which is wonderful. It's uh, three weeks in. Um, he's making changes, and like, he's getting good feedback from the community. He's getting excited. And then, unfortunately, there was um, some some gang violence, and a teenage gal was shot and killed, thirteen years old. And everybody retreated back into their houses because they're like now afraid again. Like, here we go again. And so he calls the group together. It's Sunday morning, like, you know, three o'clock in the morning. And he calls his his chief lieutenants. And they're like, we got to, you know, we got to batten out the hatches. Like, let's get the SWAT trucks out. Let's go door to door. Let's find the people. Let's get out the heavy artillery, you know. And he's listening to all these guys. And it's like, yeah, we've been doing this for 25 years and nothing changes. So instead, he took $5,000 out of like the drug recovery um, vault and rented two Mr. Softy machines and pulled up on both ends of the neighborhood, put police in there, started playing the music and had them serve free ice cream. And, you know, think of the impact. And he, what, he, The way he explains it is, okay, so people, everybody likes ice cream. You one thing to get parents out of the house, is the kids say, I want ice cream, I want ice cream, I want ice cream. And so all the kids came out and they regained the neighborhood again. And now free ice cream is not the panacea for the world. Okay. I totally understand that. But the principle Although is pure. it might
0: be close, Scott. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, might be for sure. But I just maybe love we it. should
0: make t-shirts that say make a, make uh, ice cream not bombs or something. <laughs> like that.
1: that might work in our house, actually, now that I think about it. But I, I do I love the notion of just thinking differently about complex problems and, and not trying to match force with force or pain with pain or a threat with a threat and instead finding creative solutions um, where you can use your skills to help drive us forward.
0: Awesome. I love that. Now, I also, I'm dying to talk to you about um, the digitization of the world and therefore the digitization of sports. And you mentioned, you know, average uh, employee age is what you said, 26 or 27, something like yeah. that. Yep. Yeah. And so I would describe those people as native digitals. They grew up in an environment where the iPhone and the smartphone was present. The internet was always there for them. And what I've learned is if you're a native digital, your digital life is at least as important. And the reality is it's become more important than your, if you will, analog life. And so they're digital first, analog second. And so how do you think about sort of at a broad level, the digital transformation of sports? And then I have a whole bunch of other drill downs I'd love to get into.
1: Sure. So I am definitely the guy who makes you check your phone at the door when you come into a, uh, a meeting. Okay. So that's me right? because I want you to lean to your left and lean to your right and ask you how your kid's soccer game was or how was the movie you went to or how are you doing or how are you feeling or have you had a vax shot yet or whatever it is i want to bring that back to the world um i oftentimes say phone down head up and and that is difficult for the for the those who are natively digitized um they're like literally a couple of the young superstars said like what do you expect me to grab
0: a pen <laughs> And I just love that we don't write anymore. I Who are love, you? What I is just, it? The 1700 Scott? Uh, no, I just love it. And I say,
1: you know, Hey, uh, either that, or I hope you have a heck of a memory. Um, but I, but I do believe that we can, can um, we could use a little more connection and reality check and, and personal touch and communication. That being said, I'm not naive to the world. And and the world is, if, if you s- were in our planning sessions, um, I talk about data and content constantly so much so that, you know, when you know, you're, you know, the boss keeps saying the same thing. You're like, okay, data and content. Like I heard you, you know, like that. <laughs> so um, I, I just believe that the transformation of our business will go through those two avenues. And so, and, and data is like the simplest thing to understand. It's just, we just need to know who our fans are and so we can get them the right information at the right time. And, um, and so that, that's been a, a process we've taken on for five years where we're just becoming smarter and smarter about who we are. And I have like all these theories about what's going to happen, which we can talk about or not talk about. But um, And then content-wise, I just think we have this special place. I mean, we have affinity. Can you imagine like people pay us to wear our logo on their shirts? It's not like any other brand. You know, it's, 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 like, it's such an advantage. Like we have people that are paid to cover us in the media. And when you talk about the 7.5 billion people who are media members, A billion of them, 1 billion people follow the NBA on social media. A billion people. And so in terms of us delivering the right content at the right time and putting the right resources, so to make sure that that we can get you to fall in love with this team and the players, because that's what we're trying to do, right? We want you to fall in love with them. And a great highlight of a dunk is wonderful, but you can get that anywhere. Uh, But we can get you back a house, and we can introduce you to their dogs and cats, and we can show you what they're wearing and maybe they go to dinner and we can show We can, we can interview them in different languages about different things. Uh, so, so I, I, I do believe that it is transforming the way we take in sports. And I, I don't, I, I don't know. I don't subscribe to like the, the traditional metrics of like TV ratings. Cause you know, I, you know, listen, I have a house of young people. My house is filled with teenagers every weekend and they take in content very differently. And so I'm trying to drive affinity and whether they watch us on television, which is wonderful, or they take us in on TikTok or Instagram or Twitter, or even LinkedIn or God forbid Facebook, which they all make fun of. And I still am on, but I, and I'm okay with that too. But I, I do think the world um, has changed. I'm interested in what's next after this, because I think that's what's what you start to really think about in terms of how we can be prepared. But the next five years um, or so, if we do do data at an elite level and we continue to put out content that's compelling, we're we're gonna be a really good business
0: for a long time. Very cool. Now, at a high level, there's sort of three that sort of swizzle around in my head. There's um, NFTs and digital products. I'd be very curious where your head's at. I mean, there's a lot of people super excited in the sports world for, I think, fairly obvious reasons. And then there's esports and people predicting that not only will esports eclipse, if you will, uh, analog sports, uh, that uh, it'll eclipse it by a zillion. And and you know, I remember when I first heard about quote unquote esports athletes getting college scholarships. And of course, you own an esports team, and I'm like, yeah. "What do you mean, fucking esports <laughs> athletes getting paid to go to this?" Is we, yeah. but it was a, for me a demarcation point. Right. So there's that. And then the other thing in the more traditional, you know, as you think about VR and AR and things along these lines, you can imagine sitting at home with VR, AR glasses on and everybody's got a courtside ticket uh, seat or everybody's sitting behind the bench uh, at the devils. And so those three things, you know, the, the esports part of it, the digital products, NFT part of it, and then more forward things, whether it's AR or others. You know, how do you think about some of these technologies?
1: Yeah. Um, that's the fun part of the job, right? I mean, I'm a, I'm a bit of a blockchain nerd. I have to admit, you know, when I talked about like the mind, body, soul stuff and, and, um, studying something every day, I have watched probably like 40 YouTube videos on blockchain. And, um, I started investing in crypto about five months ago, which is kind of like a hobby with me and my brothers. And by the way, unbelievable run. It's a bull run right now. I'm
0: not sure it's, I'm no economist, but I'm not sure that bull run's going to end anytime soon, but
1: no, 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 no. This is, this is a place to put money for sure. I couldn't agree with you more. And, uh, some of the banks are, are extremely frustrating to deal with in terms of the traditional banks, in terms of just your allowing you access
0: to invest. Well, and um, how far away are we from, I can buy my tickets to the devils with, uh, with Bitcoin.
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, it's, it's like, that's, that's the simple and easy part. I, I really believe like, I believe, you know, we're going to completely revamp uh, the banking and insurance industries. Um that's why I was so excited with NFTs. Um, I really was like, I, and, and again, I I, I don't want to pretend that I'm an expert because I'm not, um, I can only pretend that I read a lot and I talk to a lot of really smart people and, um, and the NBA is a really forward thinking league. And so they allow us to play in a space that, that they might not otherwise just keep to themselves. So NFTs, are of course um, non fungible tokens, and um, what we've seen in sports to date, the stuff that's most interesting to me are the horse racing. Like, I because I think it's funny, and I was with a, a friend of mine, Darren Roval. He's a big uh, media, more mostly social media guy, but um, and he's bought a bunch of horses, and he was telling me like, I'm gonna buy a track, and um, and I love the notion of you buying a digital horse, and then the the horse studs. And you can buy their offspring. Like, I, I think it is amazing, okay? On so many levels, yeah. And I, and I do believe that, that the virtual world, um, making money in a virtual world is coming. So your, your virtual reality, like all those movies we saw, you know, over the last 10 years about the virtual worlds and creating the virtual worlds, I think Inception was one of them. Those types of things are, are closer than around the corner and coming to a house near you.
0: And do you, I mean, there's some people here in Silicon Valley, Scott, that say things like, well, there will be a day where Nike, for example, makes more money selling digital shoes and other digital products right. that are NFT or whatever, however that technology plays out over time than they do selling, if you will, analog Air Jordans.
1: Yeah. I mean, I have a, a good friend who runs StockX, which is the largest, uh, his name is Scott Culler, sneaker exchange in the world. If you would have told us that there was going to be a sneaker exchange five years ago, we're like, you have lost your mind. But the smart people will be like, you know, there's eBay, there's StubHub. Like, why isn't there a sneaker exchange? You know? And so the notion that there's going to be digital sneakers makes total sense to me. Um, I was talking to a, a dear friend of mine who is very bright and very successful, and he just kept saying things like, I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it. I'm like, what don't you get? Like, people are buying art for tens of millions of dollars. I know that digital art piece, I think that was is a bit of like a, hey, let's let's, you know let's get something in the news, but nonetheless, forget about that. But like the notion that, that if, if you consider how digital our our offices are, our homes are, how many screens we have up, like, why wouldn't there be digital art? Like, I don't under, like, what's the, what's the, what is the counter argument to that? Now, some of what we're seeing now of like the crazy speculation and the traders, um, you know, I don't think it's, it will be long-term healthy for the market. You know, like when you, you, you know, buy an NFT and it goes up five times and you bought it for a hundred dollars and the the gas was 75 of that. Now it's trading three times. You know, I think there's like over exuberance and a lot of young people who are very comfortable um, with microtransactions and very comfortable trading and very comfortable speculating. And they're a lot smarter than we were at their age. Um, And they're a lot more savvy than we were at their age. And they have a better understanding of money than I did. I should speak for myself and not for you or any of us. And and those are the same kids who are gambling on sports on DraftKings, right? And they're the same kids who are investing in crypto speculatively. And I mean like the Doge investors, not like the ETH investors, okay? So there's a huge distinction in terms of of where you invest and and for why and et cetera. And it it excites me. I, I can't I I can't tell you anything other than I have a meeting that, um, later today with my with my team, and they're walking us through our concepts for NFTs. And I'm like fired up. I was on a pitch uh, with a company called Bitsy, which is a, a Turkish company, brilliant company, and um, and they have a really interesting model. Like it, it's a really really interesting NFT model. And what what they said that was most compelling to me was, um, and I, I was like I would go back take a step back with partnerships. Uh, sponsorships people would say i like to i like partnerships so i look for value alignment because if we have value alignment i say, look i can sell you a sign you'll be with me for a year we do a partnership and i help drive your business or check off your objectives you'll be with me forever um and i was really proud when i was at msg we had a, a hundred year relationship a hundred years okay um and i left and they they went with their competitor and i was like guys don't get it but anyway good for them um short-term game so i would say um from from my perspective, Um, You have, um, uh, anyway, so this, this company, they're saying like, okay, we want to create NFTs with you and we'll buy the first 20%. And I was like, that's so smart in so many ways. Okay. It's so smart. Um, And then we're talking about having tokens, obviously team tokens, which we we're not allowed to do yet, but I think in the next three or six months, those will be cleared. And the notion of having a 76ers token to me is real. Like how different is that than buying a share of the green Bay Packers? Is it any different to you or like you're a big man, you supporter and you buy shares because that's your, you know, that's your club to me. Like, it's just, it's just a different way to say like, that's your badge. Like it is a badge of honor. Like I own this 76ers NFT. I have a token. I'm good. I'm part of the family. To me, that makes
0: sense. It makes all the sense in the world. And it's interesting. um, Me and a handful of my friends have been having regular brainstorm sessions about how the economy is fundamentally going to change. Ooh, I like that. And one of the things we've we've looked at in Silicon Valley for decades now is where's friction in any system or process? And in the context of the financial system, there's massive friction and there's money being made because of the existence of that friction. And we can envision a world where all that goes away. And so if you think about crowdsourcing, and our, our ability to participate in things, why wouldn't we have a world where we would have a marketplace where person to person you could help fund somebody's education and make a loan? And they would pay an interest rate to you. And we don't need a bank in between. Because the bank right now, you and I make deposits and then they make loans. Well, if you and I want to invest in people who want loans, what do we need the freaking bank for? Right. And so there's all this, you we used to hear this word in the dot-com bubble, and we're starting to hear it more now, disintermediation where we can take people out of the equation and to your point, Hey, if I'm a fan, I want to own a piece of the New Jersey devils. and just, just for fun, bragging rights over beers. (laughs) Yep.
1: I I agree. But what will be really interesting in the immediate term is remember, like remember who's going to impact our regulation. Okay. They are, they are older than I am and they can be informed, but the best way to kill this ecosystem is to overregulate right? So, and who has the power? Big banks have a lot of
0: power. They do. And many of these executives still have their emails printed out and handed to them by secretaries like it's
1: 1950. Yeah. I, I, so, and then who is getting the big treasury jobs, like the former bankers? And so we just have to create, hopefully, um, and that's why it's so important. I don't want to go back to my, my pedestal, but that's why it's so important to vote. It really is. Like we need to do better and be better. We need to get better slate of candidates, and we need to get get ourselves educated, and we need to get people in office in all offices, even your local offices. You see that now. Like, look at your local, like how vaccines are being distributed locally. Are like, are you happy with how they're being distributed? Is your community doing a wonderful job? Is your is your is your state doing a wonderful job? Is your country doing a wonderful job? Well, you know, it's a good example, like laying out right in front of us what's working and what's not and what good, great management looks like. You look at every great company and it's like, is it ever an accident?
0: To me, it's not. No. I mean, it can be an accident for a little while. There are yep. people who win lottery tickets and get hit by lightning, but it, it I sure want to win ain't. a
1: lottery ticket and I want to get hit by lightning, just for the record.
0: <laughs> but it's not, it's not really sustainable. And, you know, we talked a lot about diversity and you with such a em- young employee base. One of the things we don't hear very much about is age diversity. And you and I are the same vintage. I'm 53. And I talk to many of my peers about this. And I say, how many close friends do you have that are plus or minus 30? How many key individuals do you work with that are plus or minus 30? And more often than not, the answer is zero or pretty damn close to zero. I say, well, you have your head up your ass because I have a lot of 20 and 30 year olds around me. Uh, and most of them are confused that I'm mentoring them. <laughs> I'm not confused about who's mentoring who, right? <laughs> and and it's a pure joy. I, my new newsletter, you know, one of my partners is in his 40s and and one of them is 30. And the age diversity we have, every creative session we have every week is is to me, I know it sounds corny, but it's pure bliss. And part of it is because of the different perspectives around the ages, the 30 year olds and native digital, and, and that makes it all the more interesting and fun. And we learn things, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so I guess as it relates to, you know, you've had a lot to do with the leadership of these leagues, uh, you know, MSG being one of the most iconic places in, in American history. And to your point, most of these leagues, most of these huge iconic sports properties are not known for uh, having a lot of 30-year-old executive vice presidents. And so um, how do we make sure, whether it's at the NBA level or the NHL level or, frankly, anywhere in sports, that um, we don't get stupid regulations and we don't have the NHL sort of acting in an arcane way when maybe if they took a a, a native digital point of view, they might do something com- completely different?
1: That's a great question and multi-level question which most of yours are which i always appreciate uh, one of our presidents is 36 years old for whatever it's worth and i love it yeah and he makes me crazy but um but yeah i i listen i'm i i know when i was young i was very hard working i was very ambitious by the way I, I don't know what you are i'm just not i have no i never even understood that ambition was why there was a negative connotation around ambition until i got older You know, I just, I wanted to tackle the world and I was going to do it. So I was young, I was ambitious and I was running into roadblocks everywhere. Um, And a lot of, there aren't many, there were not many people that were my bosses rooting for me or that's how I felt anyway. And um, I did have a few bosses along the way. Um, One was John Spolster. I was 22 years old. He's the president of the team. and He's taking five of us out to, out to dinner and drinks once a month. And I thought, man, oh man. You know, and I, you know, so I had some great people who were saying, "You can go change the world, go do it." And here's what, here's, um, and I had others trying to stifle what I did and how I did it. And so I'm, we're trying to create an environment where um, best idea wins. It doesn't always work like that, as you know, um, because any manager, anybody along the chain can shut you down. Anybody on that piece chain can shut you down. So if you have a superstar, twenty six year old, if their boss is thirty four. And wants to shut you down, you shut down. And that's what you have to understand is like when you're running these companies, you have to flatten it. It has to be flatter. It has to be. Um, and you, as the boss, the CEO or CMO or CRO, whatever job you are, you've got to get down and understand what the heck is happening. Because I got to tell you, the work that's happening and the ideas that will emanate, if you can actually untangle from the bureaucracy which you've created, will just be, it will change the way you see the world. And it will inform your decisions, and you'll be able to make smarter decisions faster. Um, But I will tell you, like um, you know, the notion of of dashboards, which I'm sure everybody has their dashboards to go through, it's just one layer and it's just one data point. And I found, like you know, when I'm in a rut and and I'm not being my best self, I can tell you I'm leaning on dashboards. And when I'm doing my being my best self, I'm taking the dashboards as as a as a data point and an alarm bell. And an opportunity, and I'm going to dig. And I'm going to dig with people who are just closer to the business than I am. Um, so I think I don't know. I don't know if I answered your question, but I I think we all have this opportunity, a special opportunity to learn more. I love the notion that you have 30 and 40 year olds around you. I do, I do too. I have them around all the time. But am I spending enough time with them? Or am I spending too much time with the CFO and the general counsel and the two presidents who all have one particular view? And, you know, am I the Looney bird CEO who's sending them NFT articles in the middle of the night? I am. I am. I'm that guy. Okay.
0: I love that guy,
1: Scott. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the fun. That's, I want to, I want to learn. I want to grow. I want to, you know, we're talking about hobbies. Like, man, if, if you're in this business and you can't get into the NFTs right now and actually untangle it and understand what impact it may or may not have, then you're in the wrong business. You're in a ticket selling business. I don't want to be in that
0: business. Well, and it's interesting uh, that you mentioned in, towards the beginning of our conversation, the new roaring 20s. And um, you might have done some of this research. I've done a fair amount myself as well to go back and learn from the 1800s and see. And there's so many parallels, it's insanity. And one of them, of course, is a massive breakthrough in category innovation around technology, you know, electricity, uh, uh, came to light, haha, in the Roaring Twenties, right? And the automobile explosion, and you know, so many. The, the, uh, is it the toaster? I think it's the toaster. Anyway, there's a bunch of them, right? And so we're living at that time. And and to your point, and maybe it's because I've lived my whole you know professional life in Silicon Valley. There's so much innovation right now. It's never been this way in my career in 35 years. And so I, if you can't get excited about this stuff. Uh, you're, I, I don't know. You need to punch out.
1: Yeah, no, I'm with you. I'm interested in what you
0: learned. So what, why do you think,
1: cause we're in, I mean, I feel like we're living in the golden age, right? I mean, uh, you know, I just feel like everything is more interesting. The world is changing before our very eyes. Like the rate of innovation is going through the roof, but what, what insights did you get from the last coming out of the last pandemic that drove such innovation?
0: So here's the big aha. And we uh, recently wrote a newsletter about it. I'm happy to share it with you if you like. We called it b- b- Bannister Breakthroughs. So Roger Bannister is the guy who breaks the four, four minute mile. mile yeah. right? And for years, people said it was physically impossible for human beings. Uh, body structure. There's a whole argument as to why it wasn't possible. And then when people started said, well, maybe it'll be possible, but if it's going to be possible, it's going to be in these very certain circumstances and this and that and the other. Of course, Bannister proved all of it wrong. And so when a breakthrough like that happens, there's the power of the breakthrough itself. But then there's the bigger power, which is um, after he breaks the record, other people start breaking the record. And then you get marathons where more than one people break the four minute mile. Of course, sooner or later, a woman breaks the four minute mile. And and so there's the breakthrough and then there's all of the trickle down breakthroughs create more breakthroughs and there's non sequitur breakthroughs. So people say, well, if that's possible in human performance, what else can be possible? We recently had um, Stephen Kotler on who's written an insane book. If you haven't read, I highly recommend it. It's called The Art of Impossible. And he takes a lot of the learnings from the extreme sports world and applies them more broadly to life. And so I think the answer to your question is the future is begging to be created in front of us right now. Bannister breakthroughs have happened everywhere. Who could have thought you could do work from home in a week? Nobody. That was possible. Who could have thought you could take a 10 to 20 year process on drug development and distribution and do it in plus or minus nine months? And and so there's been these massive technology breakthroughs, massive societal breakthroughs that have happened since the beginning of COVID. And what we know is new categories of innovation create new categories of in- innovation, and it explodes and explodes and explodes. And so sitting in the heart of Silicon Valley, we see a situation where this is on fire. And I've been doing this for uh, 35 years, Scott. I've never had an inbox like the inbox that I have top tier, the the greatest venture capitalists in the world, bringing forward these insane entrepreneurs with these incredible, like I've never experienced this much net new innovation. When I talk to my VC friends, I mean, it's very clear. Right. And so I think most people don't understand. And this is my, my final point, the receptivity to new, to different, to breakthrough, has never been higher than it is right now because there's been banister breakthrough after banister breakthrough after banister breakthrough. And so I think when we live in an environment of that much innovation and that much receptivity, one of the biggest, uh, stupidities in human thinking, I think is oh, People don't like change. Oh, really? Well, nobody used to have a smartphone and nobody used to drink flax milk.
1: <laughs> I know no, right? you're so, so right, but, but people
0: why, love change.
1: I know, but you're, you live in that microcosm of change. Right, that's where you live. I mean, that's why any trip to the valley is worth a trip. It, it just—it's invigorating. It's inspiring. You—you you leave there kind of like walking on air because you've just met so many smart people who've seen so many smart things or are creating something smart. You know, I wonder if you—if you go across the country, if you'd have that same same sense. Now, major cities, of course. Um, but I, I like that there is a concentration. I—I I always, oftentimes, use the expression there. You know, when someone says, "No, we can't," "No, that doesn't make sense." No, that's impossible. I say, there was a man on the moon before I was born. We can figure this out. You know, let's just, let's stretch. Let's reach. Let's grow. And let's be okay stumbling. And that's what I love about the Valley. And that's what I love about innovation. And that's what I love about all the great the Edisons of the world. Like Edison is not like, boom, a light bulb. This is awesome. We have electricity. Let's do it. Hey, I'm a genius. Let's go. It's like, no, he built an infrastructure of the smartest minds in the world. And he was a different cat. I mean, very, very different. And did a lot of his research very close to where I live. And he also failed, whatever, 2,000 times, right? And so you have to be okay. And so when you're, when you're running, when you're not running one of these great um, companies that kind of emerge out of the valley with brilliant people, and they're the smartest people in the world, and they're the most creative, and they get incredible funding, and they have all this infrastructure around, if you're not that, you know, if you're me, um, and you're just like a regular guy, and you're trying to figure this out together. You have to be okay, and your team has to be okay with failure. And that's, that's, I'm interested in hearing like how you experience that because I experience it like I'm kind of okay with who I am and what I've done. And I trip and fall publicly, privately. People know I'm very comfortable. I'd much rather share one of my failures than a success. I'm just more comfortable in that, in that zone. And so I'm interested in how you have seen that because I love the notion of tripping, falling, failing and creating a culture where. If we're not falling, we're not pushing
0: hard enough. I love this topic. My short answer is, uh, I've had to learn to lose to, to to own my loser. I got thrown out of school at eighteen for being stupid. Uh, I found out at twenty one that that's, I have. Now
1: that's irony, right?
0: Yeah, I found out at twenty one that I have four or five diagnosed uh, learning differences: dyslexia, dyscalculia, all these things. I I call it dysfucklia. Um. <laughs> And so maybe my education would have been different had I known that. But at 18 years old, I was forced with a choice, a life of manual labor or start a tech company with a friend of mine. Wow. And so for me, I think like a lot of entrepreneurs, um, entrepreneurship wasn't a way up in the world. It was a way out. And so from that perspective, if you're, even if you don't want to be an entrepreneur uh, in a traditional sense, being entrepreneurial today, we have more capability than ever before. You could start a podcast; we're downloaded in 189 countries. N- nobody ever knew me as a podcaster or writer until a few years ago. You started; I uh, started at the bottom. Right. Right. Our our ability to make money as well as be fulfilled through work that is our creation and/or co creation with uh, of others has never been higher than it is right now. And so if you live in the middle of the country and you want to start a small business on Etsy, you can do that. We have a a baker in town here uh, who lives just a couple blocks from us. He lost his job in the pandemic. He was worried he was going to get thrown out of his place. He was was very, very concerned about his future. And he said, well, I got no choice. I got no job. I'm going to start a company. And he called, he called his little brand. He, put up, he started putting up photos on Instagram. He calls himself the Santa Cruz Bread Boy. Well, it turns out he's a, he's a master baker. Wow. Well, he starts posting stuff on Instagram, Scott. And then he says, well, uh, next Saturday, I'm going to come out with my Vespa scooter. And I'm going to sell some focaccia bread and some uh, cannoli. If you want to buy some, I'll, I'll be there at 10 a.m. or whatever it is. So my wife found this guy was doing this stuff. We went out the first time. Well, there was a line down the street. <laughs> <laughs> and so fantastic. here's an unemployed young guy. I don't know exactly how old he is, but, you know, mid thirties yeah. would be my guess. Classic Santa Cruz guy, tattoos, the whole thing, who loses his job and says, well, what am I going to do? And because of Instagram, in this case, he connects the old world to the new world. And now all of a sudden he's sold out every week and he's building a business and and he's now looking for space Ah, and so this is what i mean even if you're a quote unquote bread maker if you get creative and innovative you find a new angle you find a new way you build some word of mouth and this guy has taken control of his career used the technology and at the same time is doing a great thing for the community he's become beloved in a matter of a couple of months i love it though
1: i also though what i've learned is um, being an ent- a failed entrepreneur, and I come from a family of entrepreneurs. My my mom, my dad, um, my brothers, my sister—they're entrepreneurs. I'm the only sellout. And I, I will say, like, it's harder to be an entrepreneur. It is the path is harder, and the the upside might be bigger for the top one percent. But for everybody else, it's worse. It has to be a labor of true love and passion. If you have the true love and passion, get in the game and go for the ride but it is a white knuckle roller coaster adventure. Like we we have uh, an innovation lab where we invest in, in pre-business plan um, startups. And then we have a small venture fund. And I, I mean, I sit on a bunch of the boards. It's terrifying. Like, I mean, as a as a traditional businessman, like the notion of like, hey, we're good. Uh, we got six months of cash. I was like, my first meeting, I'll never forget. I was like, six months? You know, like, yeah, we're, we're fine. We have six months. I was like, whoa, whoa time out. Did you say we're fine? We have six months. And I, I, um, you know, I, I think it's incredible. And I've, I mean, talk about what I've learned. Holy moly. I love hope. And I love like the thinking big and I love the, I'm going to take over the world. And I love, we can do this and it doesn't matter. You can put an obstacle. You can throw a bus in front of our office. Doesn't matter. I'm going to show, I'm going to make it work. I will do anything, anytime. I love like the 24-7. I'm going to get this done at all costs. I love when guys and women put it on their backs and say, look, let's do that. We can do this. Um, I, I, I think it's inspiring and incredible and certainly changing the world, uh, but it's a hard road.
0: It's a very hard road. We have many legendary entrepreneurs uh, on the podcast. Uh, Of course, I know many. Another one now, just thinking about as you were talking, we had this incredible gal, uh, Gloria Huang, on uh, a little while ago, and she's the founder of a new category of um, a helmet that's really focused more on this new mobility space, you know, the scooters, the e-bikes, and things like that. The company's called Thousand Helmets. And she was working in the philanthropy department of Tom Shoes. She had this idea after she tragically lost a friend to a head injury. She got busy. She did a Kickstarter. She raised enough money to create a fo- prototype. She bootstrapped the thing together. And now she's she's creating a whole new category in a dusty industry. Uh, and she's riding this new megatrend. And so that that's the other part of it that I really love is today. Yes, I spent most of my career with... People go to Sand Hill Road and raise a couple hundred million dollars from the top VCs, and, and that's a fun game to go play. Absolutely, but there's also a game called "Hey, I want to create a new category of helmet." Because to right. your point, I'm a mission-driven entrepreneur. I lost a friend. I don't want to see this happen again. Love that. There are things I see deficient in the current category of helmets. I'm going to put a thing on Kickstarter. I'm going to scrape and I'm going to scrounge. I'm going to get some cash flow going. And bam, she's got a very serious company. I, I met her because my wife bought us the helmets.
1: That's fantastic.
0: I love and that. And so the access to capital, the access to technology, all those things are really different. You know, there's a lot of people who could have told Gloria no. Today, she, she, she can bypass those people.
1: Boy, what a great story. I think that's the perfect world, right? And I think that's what we are always trying to accomplish on our second run through I think the first run through, you're just like so thankful and appreciative that anybody will give you money. You spend a lot less time focusing on, on the terms and the pain. And the second time through, you're like, okay, you know, fool me once. And it's one of those deals. Um, and, I, and I think that any of us who've done it once and, and, uh, and didn't fare as well as they would have hoped, that second time we're thinking about, okay, how can we scratch and claw? Let's not take money let's until we get some revenue let's uh scrape every penny we have let's get in some cases to cash flow positive in some cases to let's just get some revenue up and running in some cases let's have a working prototype whatever whatever depending on your category and what you're up to um but but for me um yeah that's a uh, that's definitely the way to do it and way to go and i and i'm thinking about like this one innovation lab company called u.gg it's in the esports space we we never got to esports but um and these two entrepreneurs, um, Shingo and Alan, are just brilliant. You know they're um, comp sci guys from Cornell, and and uh, they created this product. There's now several, but their first product was to help people um, be better at League of Legends, which is one of the one of the um, esports games that we play in. And they've got they got a million people coming a week, like so in seven months. Like their cash, and now, now they're cash flow positive. And you're like, what the heck just happened? Um, they know the space. They're passionate about the space. They work 24 hours a day. They understand how to do deals. They have a great deal with Riot, um, which is part of 10 Cent, which helps them um, kind of get access to the data they need to be to do their job at a, at a world class level. Then they just get up and they're like, "Yeah, we're moving to Austin. It's the best place to get engineers. We're out." I was like, "Wow, good for you. Good for you. Let's go on a rocket ship ride." And I just I love <laughs> rocket ship rides, right?
0: Yes, and I think the aha for me over time, you know, as a young man who grew up of uh, very modest means, to put, it, to put it lightly. The big question in my life, and I think this is true for a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, it was, will Christopher make it? And when you get to some place where your own survivability is less a question... Uh, and you get involved with a number of businesses. My first business failed. So it, 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 you're less afraid of it. Uh, it's like if, when you're learning to box, you know, the first time you get punched in the face, it's not fun, but you realize you got punched in the face and you could keep going, right? And so um, this ability to continue to go on the journey, the aha, and I know it sounds corny, the aha is not the destination. Look, is it fun to build a successful company? Is it fun to stand there at NASDAQ and press the button on the first day of trading of your startup? Yes, it absolutely is. Are the financial rewards with that incredible? Yes, they are. And if you want those rewards, and those those the, the, all, by all means, and the real reward is that we get to do it. And so now, you know, for me, and it sounds like it's very similar for you. It's like, are, are the big milestones and wins along the way, critical and important? They absolutely are. But the fun thing is we get to play, we get to go through the whole site. And now I love the whole process. I love the whole process.
1: Can I, can I tell you two quick, make it stories? I know I don't want to run your time out to nothing, but. I got as much time
0: for you as you want, Scott.
1: (laughs) All right, good, good, good. So I was, I was doing this, um, it's called the CEO sleep out of the covenant house. Covenant House is a they help homeless teens. So they just pluck homeless teens off the street and, um, and they get them on their feet, make them go to school, help them get a job, do job training, resume training. Um, in some cases, get it, make sure they're clean and then get them on their feet. And they have this incredible track record of taking a, a homeless person and a teen. And so uh, they have like these CEO sleepouts where you literally go and I take my kids now um, and we go sleep outside on a cardboard box in the, you know, in the snow. It's terrible. Like it's literally the worst night of the year. And we, we raised money and bl- awareness, blah, 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 blah. But that's not what the story is. So um, every year they put um, some homeless teens that have gone through the program. Some have matriculated to kind of the, their version of a halfway house where they, they kind of, you know, get them going. And then they're, then they're off and going. And so this one young man, um, his name is Rashad. I'll never forget. Um, he gets up and he says, um, and he's got a, a white shirt on and a black tie. The rest of us are just like this. We're just getting ready to go outside and be miserable. So we got ski hats on and gloves and just awful. And he's like, "Hey, I was a, uh, you know, I was sleeping on a park bench because I aged out of foster home at eighteen. I was sleeping on a park bench and I was so cold one day I was shivering and I was blue. The only place I knew where to go was to school. So I went to school. My guidance counselor happened to be there. It was a Saturday, and she put, brought me to. They called it the CUB. Took me to the CUB, and they gave me clothes and they gave me food and they gave me a bed to sleep in and they taught. You know, I. You know, I went to my prom and now, you know, I'm going and taking classes at Temple University. Now it was like, it was cool. Like I was like, I had chills, like thinking about it. And then he looks at us and he's like, you know, I'm at Temple taking classes. Like me, I'm taking college classes and I'm working as a security guard. I made it. And I was just like, wow, he has made it. You know, it's like he made it because that kid doesn't have a chance in hell. And he made it. And like, so that version of making it, you know, I just wish that we all, uh, we each had our own version of making it and that I don't have to compare against your version of making it because your version is very different to mine and and mine might be really different and mine might have nothing to do with money or it might not have anything to do with success. Mine might have to be as like, Hey, I kept my marriage together. My family broke up when I was young. And so that's making it, or your thing might be like, I want my kids to go to college. Hey, I want my kids to do good in the world and make like whatever the making it is. It's like, I want people to make sure they define that for themselves. And the second story I wanted to share, which, which really like struck a chord for me was, was when you, you said you got tossed out of school. I don't know what the scenario is of that, but there's this uh, friend of mine. Her name is Dr. Karen Gordon and she's a a child psychologist and worked with um, me and my family. We were at this retreat. I was with uh, one of my daughters and she was telling the story to my daughter that when she was 14, she went to a counselor, went to, she was struggling in school, high per, per, like, achiever family, like Ivy League, doctors, you know, the whole thing. And, you know, her grandmother was like a doctor in the forties, like kind of crazy stuff where they just super, super achievers. And she was struggling in school and, and she was feeling pressure and their parents are like, man, she's working hard. What's the problem? So they take her to a, to get, to get tested. And the guy looks her in the eye at 14 and says like, you have a learning disability. You'll, you're not even going to graduate from high school. And as a fourteen-year-old, totally crushed um, because you actually believe what everybody says. Now, first of all, think of the insensitivity, bad judgment, and awful, awful, awful delivery. I know. I want. I want to ring. I want to find that guy. I want to ring his neck. And so, what the parents did was they went to her and said, "Okay, so we're going to reshuffle the deck here. Um, We're not going to look at your grades anymore. But after every semester, we're going to ask you." to grade yourself on how hard you worked. And I just love, I love the notion of that. Now, now, this is a woman who now has written books. She has her PhD. She went to college. She went to high school. And she says her learning disability is her superpower. Um, and I love, I love the notion of that. I just love her thinking about that. She says, well, I, I could never work with, with kids who are struggling without knowing what it is to struggle. I love that story for so many reasons. One is don't let people tell you what you can and can't do. Don't. I love it because I don't want anybody defining me or my kids. Like I want to define myself. I want to define who I am and what I'm about and what I can accomplish. Three, I love her taking the bad news and her parents saying, yeah, I'm not defining you by your grades. That's how everybody else defines you. And she said, well, that's how you measure my brothers and sisters. Said, You're not your brother and sister. You're you. So how do you look at kids individually and say like, how can I set up an environment where she can be successful? And then three or four, I just love her reaching and stretching. And that's what I want for everybody. That's what I want for everybody in life. I want them to dream bigger than you thought possible and be okay. Like jumping out of the airplane with the parachute and be okay. Free falling. Sometimes and be okay. Struggling. I mean, Be okay, you know, getting foreclosure notices on your house. I have. And running a company into the ground. I did. And having to lay off 52 people, including your brother. I have. It's okay. It's okay. It's going to be okay. Stick with what you know. Like surround yourself with great people. Have some confidence in yourself. Have a vision of what you want to be and who you want to be. And live a life you want to live and not the life that other people want to live.
0: Amen. Hallelujah. Scott. (laughs) Clearly I could talk to you for 200 hours in a row, I think, same, same, Um, same. but I want to be respectful of your time. Is there anything else? Are there any other things you'd like to touch on before we wrap Scott?
1: No, I, 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 I love what you do. I appreciate that you're making an impact in the world. And I know you kind of like threw out, Hey, I just set up a podcast and it's like the number one podcast for businesses. It's a, it's a real impact. And Everybody says it. Not everybody does it and you're doing it. I think that's freaking awesome. So keep
0: up the great work. Well, thank you, brother. And uh, you know, when I I look at your resume, I showed showed my wife your bio. Like, (laughs) holy fuck. This (laughs) resume is insane. Uh, So I would tell you to keep doing what you're doing. And um, uh, you're certainly welcome back anytime. I want to thank you for writing your new book. It's wonderful and um yeah i'd love to have you back anytime and uh f- fingers crossed it i don't know i don't want to be pessimistic but it doesn't look like the devils are going to win the stanley cup
1: tough tough season so far we're young we're trusting the process there too we're a y- good young course stay the course three years from now when i'm on this podcast you're gonna be like wow those devils are amazing i'm like i know
0: we're a genius system. and uh i don't want to jinx anything but maybe it would be fun to see the sixers in the uh, in the final let's go <laughs>
1: Let's go. Hey, uh, when I come out your way, I'm going to give you a buzz. I'd love to get together if that works and uh, do the same. If you're used,
0: not to sound corny, but, uh, come stay with us. Oh, that'd be great. You're welcome to come here. And, uh, by the way, Scott, if you want to come and meet some, um, some, some of the players in Silicon Valley who you might not know, uh, I'd also be happy to put a a little bit of a tour together for you. If you want to come out and spend some time here.
1: I would absolutely love that. And I'm definitely going to take you up on it.
0: So thank you. Yeah. And, uh, Do you enjoy beer or scotch or?
1: You know, I gave up drinking. That's a, that's a whole other story. So we'll, we'll have, we'll have that conversation some other time. I'll be having a, I'm a salsa water and lime guy, but I'm still hilarious when I'm out there. The more you drink, (laughs) the funnier I get that that I can promise you.
0: Well, and I'll turn you on to some local coffees and teas and things along those lines, (laughs) if you prefer.
1: (laughs) Uh, It's too good. All right, we'll see you soon. All right, brother. Thanks. Thank you so
0: much. Well, there he is. Scott O'Neill. New book is uh, is red hot. I loved it. I think you will too. Check out Be Where Your Feet Are, Seven Principles to Keep You Present, Grounded, and Thriving. Today, more than ever, every business needs every advantage to thrive and succeed. And that's where my friends at NetSuite by Oracle come in. NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system. Now's the time to invest in an infrastructure that will scale, that will allow you the power and flexibility to be successful. From your supply chain to your financials to billing be, and beyond, NetSuite gives you everything you need to power your business with precision. Check out netsuite.com slash different today for your free product tour. That's netsuite.com slash different. And my friends at Splunk are the leaders in data to everything. Thousands of IT, security, and business professionals rely on Splunk to bring together disparate data, data in motion, data at rest, structured and unstructured data. Splunk drives outcomes across your entire enterprise, including security, IT, and DevOps. Get empowered to bring data to everything today at splunk.com slash D, the number two, the letter E, that's splunk.com. Slash D to e. All right. We would like to thank the legendary Scott O'Neill. Check his book out, Be Where Your Feet Are. My friends at One Life Fully Lived are the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check them out at uh, Bottle uh, <laughs> at onelifefullylived.org. Speaking of bottleneck, my friends at bottleneck.online are the world's first dedicated distant assistant. If you're interested in an assistant that's going to take great care of you and never be anywhere near you, <laughs> check out bottleneck.online. My friends at Atranet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Check out atre.net. And if you have a different mind, check out lockhead.com and subscribe to Category Pirates. And if you want to help us give a transformative experience, to underserved kids in the Santa Cruz area who want to learn about the power of science and technology while learning how to surf, check out the dropincoalition.org. That's dropincoalition.org. All right, I need to warn you that uh, creators of today's podcast may have been consuming libations, and this podcast does contain nuts. Today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and we would love it if you shared the shit out of it. Uh, please be aware, on lab tests, this podcast did cause different behavior in mice. Remember to support your local athletes, teach kids sports. We are produced and edited by the GOAT, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. Sarah Knox and Jamie J do legend- legendary technical execution, and they build Lockhead.com. Show notes by GM Simon. Remember to listen to the Tragically Hip. Check out Conscious VC podcast uh, by, brought to you by Mayfield with uh, my buddy, Naveen Chata. And I'm uh, stoked and honored to co-host that podcast with him. Check out Conscious VC, wherever you get legendary podcasts. Also, uh, thank you to all of our healthcare heroes and frontline workers and military vets. Um, thank you, Candy Dandy. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this odd cast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies goes out to Carson Sweet, CEO of Cloud Passage. Sorry, Carsey, we just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you. Please stay safe. We deeply appreciate you investing part of your life with us. Stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your different.